Hello and welcome to Career Move Secrets, a brand new podcast for active job seekers and the career minded. In each episode, I'll interview a special guest from my global network. Guests will include seasoned recruiters, experienced hiring managers from companies big and small, and successful individuals who have developed great careers through making great career moves. My aim is to uncover and share my guests' unique perspectives, their insights, and their insider advice on job searching, interviewing, and career enhancement. My name is Tony Talbot, and I've been working in the recruitment industry as an international headhunter for over 20 years. I'm the creator of CareerMoveSecrets.com, a step-by-step online course for job seekers that I designed to be the ultimate guide to getting hired in the hidden job market. I will add my perspective to the conversation, and together with my guests, we hope to provide some genuine, actionable insider advice that will help you execute your next career move. Thanks for joining us today. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Career Move Secrets. Today's guest is Dave Shimmons. Dave trained as an electrical engineer 30 years ago and he's carved out a very impressive career in the innovative engineering and technology space, which led him to join Ricardo PLC, a large and very interesting global engineering and environmental business, which he's led as CEO for the past 15 years. Hello, Dave. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Very, very good. And how's uh, how's this uh, latest sort of uh, lockdown been treating you? I take it you're at home and yeah, I'm currently uh, I'm currently working from home. I mean, it's uh, it's been a long journey. This one, being a global mm. business, we had uh, the, the pandemic impacted our Chinese business in January, um, where we went into shutdown there. So I've been dealing with the COVID pandemic for nearly a year now. Um, so you get used to it yeah, in the office and working from home. And is it, I mean, you obviously have a lot of office-based people, but you also have tech, you know, hands-on tech. So how has that worked? Have you been able to continue to build things in, in yeah, the time it, where we've been locked down? Absolutely. It's really interesting. And again, I, I, I draw the, the differences in China. When China went into the lockdown, uh, it went in in January and it came out on February the 24th, but it was a pretty deep lockdown. Everybody uh, in our Chinese office um, worked from home and we managed to deliver the projects. But business development and sales was more difficult because China is very much face-to-face sales. Um, So when it came to Europe, UK and and the US, we were ready for what it took to lock down. We knew what that meant because we'd already gone through it in in, in China. Um, So we managed to get most of our people working from home really within a week. Uh, We were prepared for it. And again, we've managed to deliver the projects with people from home, um, logging onto their IT systems. but what we did see is that sales managed to continue. And I think in the Western world, we're more used to um, doing things online and, and it was just a little bit easier to keep the sales going. So there was some interesting different cultural differences. We have got people on site. Uh, our test engineers who test engines, test batteries, transmissions, um, clearly they can't do that at home. Um, so they need to be by the test facilities. So they're on site. And we do manufacture the transmissions for the Bugatti Chiron. We do the engines for all the McLaren road cars. Clearly, you can't build an engine from home. So, yeah, it's a combination. 
Yeah, you're mentioning so the, it's an incredibly interesting business, Ricardo. For, I mean, you know, it is. I think it's a name that a lot of people do know, but you know, for for those of us who are a bit more geeky and interested mm. in it, you know, it's everything from sort of incredible motorsport, you know, uh, Group B rally cars, uh, you know. Formula One type type tech through to as you say Bugatti Veyrons, Jensen interceptors, all the you know really sexy stuff, interesting Ooh. stuff. So it's it's an incredible. I, I, I must I must ask you how did you you know because you obviously didn't start just go straight into Ricardo. I'm interested in your career and and how it's developed. Could you give us the sort of quick potted history? Yeah, I can. Yeah, it's um it's an interesting journey, and I think one hopefully your your listeners will you know pick up little bits along the way. Um, as, you, as you gave my intro, I, I'm an electrical engineer by background. Um, I, from university, I joined Marconi Instruments. Um, you know, way back when, if you're an electrical engineer, you either joined companies like Ford, BT, or Marconi, one of the GEC companies. So it's a standard company to go and join. Uh, I did that for three years. Um, I, I found the culture there um, a little bit slow for me. <laughs> so once I'd got my product into production, I left and I joined a, a consulting company called Technology Partnership in Cambridge. Completely different, uh, very dynamic. Uh, you're working long hours um, into the early hours in the morning, getting things ready because in the morning you're on a plane and you go and present to senior directors. You know, so very much um, a much more dynamic industry, and that was more um, better for me. And one of the projects we did, uh, I mean, we developed all sorts of things. I was in power electronics, obviously, so I developed as wide-ranging things as um, plug-in um, battery-operated vacuum cleaners that, you know, nowadays every home has got them. Back then, these were really, really breaking technology. Um, capacity estimators, in other words, fuel gauges that you have on drills to tell you when your drill is about to run out of energy, um, through to um, electric vehicles. And one of the projects was a project for the Los Angeles government for a new electric uh, vehicle, and the technology was really... Um, it was outdated milk float technology at that time. So we developed some advanced power electronics. We did a spin-off, uh, myself and uh, two other colleagues, 50% by the parent company, 50% funded by PowerGen, uh, the electricity utility. We developed a company from scratch, and we ended up putting buses into the Sydney Olympics, electric buses into Brazil, Scotland, London, all sorts of things from a team of 70 people, really, really dynamic. And as part of that, I got to know Ricardo. Um, they did some uh, vehicle crash work for me and uh, also some um, transmissions gearbox work for me for, as, as part of that. We, we were building a Ford Transit van at the time. Um, and so I got to know them. Uh, PowerGen at that point um, decided that electric vehicles in the 90s was not something for the future. Um, and they decided to exit business, which is... I regret that move. Um, <laughs> and so we ended up closing the business, sadly. I did look to do a management buyout, but Bowergen really wanted to close the business. So um, closed the business, and I had plans to take some time off. And as happens, in the week that uh, I closed, uh, I had two companies approach me. One was Tag McLaren Audio, uh, mm-hmm. who wanted to develop a new top-end audio system like Bose, Bang & Olsen. Really, really, really sexy company. Um, and I also was offered a, a position down at Ricardo, or at least I was offered the opportunity to go and meet Rodney, the chief exec. And Ricardo wanted me to come and set the electric vehicle part of the business up and electronics. And you know, I'd done that, and I'd just closed my baby, so it was a bit raw. 
And I said, look, I, I don't want to do that. Um, but they persuaded me to come down to have a chat with Rodney. I walked in and Rodney um, looked at me and I was introduced as, this is Dave. We tried to persuade him to do our electric vehicles. Uh, I must have rolled my eyes. And Rodney said, you don't want this job, do you? And I said, no, and I'm sorry for wasting your time, but I did, did, did tell people. And he said, good. Um, I'm not going to give you a company to run just yet, but come and show me what you can do in business development. And so he offered me a job in business development. I went home and I spoke to my wife and I said, look, two opportunities. I'm not going to take time off. Um, I've got a really sexy job, no relocation, more money, commercial director, exciting Tag McLaren, or I've got a demotion, less money, relocation to the South Coast. And, and, I, and she looked at me and I said, but there's something about Rodney, the CEO. And I decided to take that one based on the CEO. And I think that's a lesson for people there is, you know, people often say you don't join a company, you join the person or the leader. And that was so true. So I joined Ricardo. Um, I knew nothing about engines. I was, I was electronics and that. Um, I was given BMW as an account, which was a dormant account. I'd never won any work from them. Um, I think I was given it as a, that will teach you. And um, we ended up uh, securing the mini project, which turned out to be a 52 million largest project Ricardo's ever won. Um, and it was all about when BMW were pulling out a Rover, they wanted to continue the mini project. Uh, we took the whole project over, really complicated uh, logistics exercise and, and technology, setting up a new business unit for them. Um, and we did that. And all the minis that you see on the road uh, were basically... Uh, the big mini this is not the not the little old one from the 60s mm -hmm. um the new mini um are, are all basically from that project um so very proud of that and then from that um i was offered the opportunity um two weeks before christmas uh, it was on the tuesday of two weeks before christmas rodney came to me uh, we were in the 2002-3 recession and he said uh, would you like to run uh the ricardo business units and I said, yes, I didn't join to be a salesperson. That, that's what I do. Uh, and he said, this was Tuesday. He said, good, clear desk tomorrow. You're in charge on Thursday. Uh, and on Thursday morning, he fired the existing MD. And I got up from the side of the table, walked around to the top, and said to the team, right, we've got a job to do two weeks before Christmas. And it was a very difficult job. Uh, it was a 250-man headcount reduction, and, um, tw which was 25% of the business. It needed to be done. Um, so we put a plan together. So it was on the Thursday I was uh, put in place. I said, we're going to put a plan together in two weeks for Christmas, and then we're going to go away, and we're going to think about what we're going to do to all of these families and the nightmare we're going to create families. Uh, and I want you really to digest that, and then we're going to execute that when we come back in January. And the reason I did that, I wanted people to know just how uncomfortable this is. And if you know that, you never want to do it again. Um, and the reason I know it was Thursday 11th I took over is on Friday the 12th, my uh, third child was born. And uh, I was in a meeting at about four o'clock on the Friday. And my wife said, I think it's time. The baby's coming. I said, OK, just in a meeting. Give me a call when you know it really is the time. So she called me about five o'clock. She said, no, it really is now. You need to come home. I said, yep, yeah, coming home. And she called me at half past six and said, I'm on the way to hospital, Dave. And uh, so I, I did leave at that point. I got to the hospital. And um, Chloe was born very quickly, so I got there in time. And uh, the midwife came round as they do and into the room and said, would you like some tea on toast? 
And I said, oh, I'd love some. You would not believe the day I've had. And she looked at me and she said, not you, Mr. Shemans. It's uh, another lesson <laughs> you learn about uh, yeah, midwives and that. Anyway, so did the headcount reduction, took the business from a loss to a profit. Uh, and then two years later, Rodney came to me and said, I'm throwing my, uh, you know, I'm retiring. We'd like you to throw your hat in the ring. And I was um, 39 at the time. Rodney was 62. There was a couple of other people uh, who were in the running who were in their 50s. So I thought, they're not going to give it to a 39-year-old. Um, so I went into the interview process totally relaxed. Uh, I told them exactly what I do with the company. I met the headhunters, the chairman, the other non-execs. I got through various rounds. And I just assumed this was just a process. Um, so I'd know what it was like next time. Um, and then I got the call saying, actually, Dave, you're the preferred internal candidate. And I thought, okay, good. Well, at least there's a pay rise in it. I still didn't think I was going to get the job. Uh, and then I got the call saying, you've got the job as CEO. And, uh, and really at that point, it's, okay, I've got to do what I said I'm going to do now. Well, that was in 2005, and we can talk a little bit about what I've done since. But that's how I got the job. And it, and it was one of those very much people you know, if you find good people, um, it was a risk me coming to Ricardo, but there was something about Rodney and there was something about the company that I thought I could do well with. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a, 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 an untypical story uh, for me in, in, in terms of recruitment. Your people hire people and, and people work for people. That's, that's how, how, it, how it works in, in my view generally. And if, mm. if two people can really see eye to eye and get on, um, you know you're onto a winner. Um, yeah, you know, companies can look very sexy and opportunities can look very sexy, but they can quickly go wrong, can't they? If Absolutely. you're not aligned with that with that group of people, um, mm-hmm. there is a real human. Well, I always say it's a human interaction, and 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 interviews are. And if you can't sort of, you know, have that human connection, you're you're not going to get very far. It, it's an incredible, interesting you, you know, business record, and you've you've been at the head for fifteen years, which is. About three times the norm, isn't it? I think yeah. the the uh, the norm for a, for a CEO in the UK tenure wise is about five years. So you must be yep. doing something right. Um, and you know, you 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 were also, you know, Ricardo is one of these interesting things in that it you know it is, it's got fingers in many pies. I mean, you know, the the themes are I guess are sort of energy, transport, environment, and mm-hmm. and um, there's definitely you know some incredible tie togethers and you know. A good old sort of uh, Harry Ricardo himself, one of these sort of, you know, groundbreaking Victorian engineers that was out there to try and change the world. It, it, it's got a sense of that still, um, mm. but but you know, it, it it isn't an easy job, and you've 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 obviously had to to probably make acquisitions of all sorts of interesting yeah. things over the years. How, how has that all worked out? Yeah, so it's um, <clears throat> I mean, I'll cover your first bit. You're right. It's um, the. The tenure of uh, CEOs typically three to five years. Three is far too short. You can't get anything done within that three. But um, so yeah, three to five is is normal. Uh, I, I look at it. Although I've been doing the role for fifteen years, it's been a different role. My, when I joined in two thousand and five, it was the first CEO role for me. It was setting the strategy. It was aligning the team. It was starting to move the business in the direction. Then the two thousand and eight nine recession happened. So you have to change how you manage the business overnight. It's not about strategy. It's about whatever's walking through that door. And things were walking through that door literally on a half-day basis. Things were so rapid. So you become a different type of CEO at that point. 
you know, you can't, you know, I joke at work and, you know, you put the felt pens away at that point. This isn't about strategy. This is about business survival. Um, so I did that. And obviously, you know, you get through the business. That takes you sort of three years. And then you're in the recovery phase. Um, and then, you know, that's a, another way that you run the business. You're picking people up. You're regrowing. That was about another three years. And then your business in a strong position. Then you get into the acquisitive, real serious growth phase. So actually, if I look at it, you know, I've done four or five different jobs as CEO. Um, and, and often um, I, I, was, I was lucky enough to, um, again, it was down to another great chairman that I had in a previous company um, where he, I was doing my annual appraisal. And again, another piece of advice for your, for your listeners. I was doing my annual appraisal and he asked me, did I need any training? And I said, yeah, I could do with uh, some finance training, business training. You know, I was running the business, but I'm an engineer. And he said, go away, find yourself a course. And uh, I came back and said, there's two, two courses. The one I'd really like to do is a three-month course at Harvard. Um, and if you don't want to send me to Harvard, there's this other three-month course at INSEAD in Switzerland. And he, you know, he called me a cheeky bugger and um, said, give me 18 months of your life and you can go. But you know, when I was at Harvard, and I did get there, and it, it, testament to him, he was a great guy. One of the things they teach you at Harvard is you play the role of a director. You play the role of a CEO. That is so, uh, so true that context changes. Things happen, and you have to become a different style of leader. And, and I think having that ability to be able to go from that strategic, right, we're all about growth to, okay, this is about what we're doing minute by minute in the, in the 2008-09 recession. That's probably why I've managed to last as long as I have. But I've acknowledged that, that you have to just reinvent yourself to what you find in front of you. So anyway, that, that's all. Um, yeah, if you, look at, if you look at Ricardo, when I took over, we were predominantly cars. You know, I talked about the mini project, and that was very typical. Uh, it was atypical, but it's in that area that we were doing. Um, it was quite clear at that point we had eight major clients that dominated 80% of the business. They were all car clients. And the reason we had trouble in 2002 three is that we were single sector automotive and we were too focused on too few clients. So when I took over, I decided, okay, we're going to have to put a strategy that has growth but also risk mitigation. So the first thing I decided was no dependence on any single sector geography or client as a, as a philosophy. So the first thing we did was geographies. So we set up, we were predominantly UK based, jump on a plane. And the first thing we did was set up in Asia, uh, China, Japan, Korea, India. We established sales offices and then development centers. That was in the first three years. 2007, eight, we moved into different sectors. So rather than just cars, we started really pushing on motorbikes, trucks, off-highway, things like diggers, JCB diggers, um, through to things like trains and ships. No different to what Harry Ricardo did 100 years ago, actually. Um, we did that. And actually, the 2008-09 recession happened. The car industry dropped us like a stone. That's what happens. Um, they are directly correlated to GDP. Um, but all the others carried us through. Uh, we got through. Uh, and then it was, yeah, we're still an engineering company. We are have to be on our bike every day of the week selling new jobs to, to fill the hopper. Wouldn't it be nice to have visibility of maybe 10 years plus? And we started doing the work with Bugatti on the Veyron transmissions. 
which was a, a massive rate of one transmissions per week. So not really high volume manufacturing, but very nice transmissions. Um, and then I took a call from Ron Dennis uh, of, of McLaren at that time, and he said he was looking to establish a car business. And they were doing an engine with somebody else that wasn't going very well. Could we take over the engine development program? And it was, yes, we can. It's um, what we do. And then he said, I don't suppose you're interested in manufacturing them. I need 1500 a year. And it's one of those moments that you can say, no, let me go away and think about it, you know, or no, we don't do that, or yes, we can. And to be honest, Ricardo hadn't manufactured engines since the First World War when we did 800 tanks engines for the First World War. Um, but you've got to take those opportunities. They don't come along very often. So it was a yes, we can moment, and then you work out how we do it. And then in 18 months, we redeveloped the engine, built the factory, and I think we've done best part of 30,000 engines to date. So that's how we got into that manufacturing. Um, it was part of a strategy, but it was part opportunistic. And then after that, um, really, it was quite clear everything that we were doing and the world was going was very much emissions and CO2 related. And that led to the acquisition of the environment consulting business. Quite clear going forward, cars are going to come under pressure. So we acquired a rail business. And we acquired um, various businesses in Australia that bolted on the geographies around that. So the underpinning theme is environmental and CO2 uh, from policy setting right the way down to engineering electric vehicles, effectively. So you couldn't be better placed than right now as, as, as we sort of, uh, you know, the world begins to look again at, um, at, at CO2. And we, you know, hopefully we're going to get a new president that's a bit more... Uh, Glued up to such issues and, and and all of these different things that are happening. So you're you're extremely well placed during this growth phase um, of the last few years, where you're acquiring businesses, growing teams, starting up new businesses. Essentially, mm. I, I'm assuming you were doing a hell of a lot of recruitment. I, I'm guessing you're not doing lots and lots of it hands on, but of course, senior leaders, your senior team, the people that you that that really make the difference. You, I'm sure you're you are involved in. How, how have you been doing that? What, what sort of um, methods have you used? Um, yeah. How have you run your recruitment processes? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm quite hands-on um, right. mm. in terms of what I do. So all of the senior team. So we've got um, effectively uh, nine business units across the world. So each of those has got an MD, each has got an FD, and they'll have their board underneath. I'll get involved with MD recruitment, FD recruitment. I I'll let the MD then choose his own team, um, although I'll help if they want me to have a look. Um, I then also have head of HR, head of IT, um, legal counsel. Um, it's finance director, obviously, with Ian. Um, and obviously, I get involved with those. So it is surprising how much recruitment I do do. Um, mm. As a business, um, we're a good grounding for, you know, we're a business that people like to poach from. <laughs> We've got a track record of producing some good CFOs and some good CEOs that leave our business and go and do other things. Um, so just when you think you've got your team, you have to recruit. <laughs> so it is a fact of life in business. You are constantly recruiting um, and constantly looking out there who are, who are people just in case. So the way I run it is with uh, the, my HR guy, Tim. Um, he keeps a watching brief on who's out there. People contact me directly. And I'll immediately pass one to Tim and say, can you go and have a look at this person? Um, people contact me on LinkedIn, um, you know, just interested. So 
if anyone does, I always pass them to Tim, uh, and then Tim will, you know, speak to them and decide whether they're somebody we should keep on the map or whether they're somebody I need to see straight away. You know, it might be, hey, Dave, I've met this lady, I've met this guy, you really need to see them, then, then I will. Um, if it's a specific search, and we've used everything from small boutiques up to the likes of the Spencer Stewart's, Corn Ferries, Russell Reynolds, Hydrogen and Struggles. Yeah. If I was looking for um, something a bit different, often I'll use a boutique because they just come up with a bit more creative solutions. So again, to, to your listeners, if they are looking for new roles, headhunters or search companies are really, really useful people to uh, get in contact with. And you probably can't have enough contacts when it comes to that. Couldn't agree more. You know, we're not all bad. We're not, you know, we are, we are, we can, we can facilitate some interesting things. That's a very, that's a very interesting point you make as well about direct approaches, which is something that I encourage people to do. You obviously get a fair few of them through LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. through, through other resources. And, you know, whilst you are sort of then pushing them to somebody else to, you know, to, to your HR guy to, to, to sort of follow up on. I'm guessing you're not, you know, you're not upset by getting uh, uh, people that are genuinely interested in coming to work for you. You know, I, I imagine that that's, you know, quite a positive thing. It, it, it ticks at least a box and then you've got to work out whether they're good or not. But it's not something that people should shy away from. Absolutely not. No, it's, you know, and, and to be honest, I've always found throughout my career, you'd be surprised how many people want to help you. Mm. And it's pretty compelling. If somebody asks you for help, you know, it's quite compelling that people will help um, you on that. And you'd be surprised who you get um, responses from. I mean, Jack Welsh, GE, you know, I wrote a letter to Jack Welsh. I, you know, again, as part of the American studies I did, you know, he was one of those big CEOs that, and they always said he always responds to people. And I thought, I'll challenge that. So I wrote him a letter and I got a response back. Um, now, whether it's from Jack, I don't know. But, um, you know, it was, it was quite interesting. You'd be surprised how many people do respond. And I do. Um, I've had graduate engineers contact me right the way up to people looking for senior roles. Um, and people just contacting me saying, um, I'm not looking at Ricardo, but do you know anyone who would be interested in my CV or in a NED role? And I'll always try and help. And mm. if I can't help, you know, I've got a network and I'll put it out there to see if they can help. Yeah, it, it, it definitely happens. I, I, you know, I argue people should should do it. You, you need a good why. You know, yeah. you need to understand why are you interested in them, in the company, and why would they be interested in you? And you need to communicate that in an effective way. But, you know, there is nothing wrong with, with doing that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, as much as companies are planned and, you know, you'll make your sort of, you know, your, your headcount plan for the year and all the different things that go on. I mean, I'm, I'm going to turn this into a question, but I, I, I'm guessing it's, it's, it's right. You know, companies being commercial entities, they react to opportunities, you know, as much as they react to threats. And if somebody very good, you know, comes across your desk, um, well, I'll ask you, if somebody really good comes across your desk, do you sometimes consider hiring them or even creating a role for them? Yes, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Often a good person would allow me um, to maybe move somebody on. Um, a good person would allow me to restructure the business in a different way. Uh, and I have created roles uh, for good people uh, w- within the company. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. This is something I try to get across to people where, you know, the, perhaps the the sort of, you know the the uh, 
the way that people search for jobs now is all very much online and they think, you know, if, if the job is not online, then it, there isn't a job. And my argument is all about the hidden job market, which is the much bigger bit of the market, 8%. And there's, there's loads going on. There's, there's us as headhunters. Um, there's you as an organization, no doubt using referrals. I'm guessing you probably yep. do have a referral channel in your business where you're very good people recommend people that they know and they get to the head of the queue. That's another huge channel. Um, and then there's, you know, direct approaches that that people can make to organizations that they think they're strategically aligned to if they can make the good case you know at all different levels that there's an opportunity to 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 have a role created for you or find a role that you didn't even know existed yeah no i i I think so and i think if you are contacting um senior people in business um it's i mean what do i do i look at it and it's very quickly i won't read two pages of a letter you know, you know, if they haven't got me in the first 15 second scan. Um, so it needs to be quite punchy. Um, yes. but equally, what it can't be is, um, hi, Dave, I'm looking for a job. Here's my CV. Because that's given mm. me a problem. So I'd say that first paragraph, what is it that you want? What is it you want me to help with? Um, and I think other senior people are the same because we get so many emails a day. So mm. it's what are you doing? to set yourself up to make it easy for the person reading it. Um, I do do get, you know, I do get approached by some um, uh, search firms who who, who just constantly send me emails saying, I've got this great candidate, bang. And they think, okay, well, you're sending me stuff every day, so why is this candidate any better than the ones you sent me every other? (laughs) And I keep telling you to talk to Tim, um, and you keep coming back to me. And and that sort of thing... um, you know, isn't helpful. But the message is really that first paragraph, make it easy for the person that you're asking to help to understand what it is you want them to help with. Yeah, it's, it's an interest generating statement you need to make at yeah. the start. And and, and 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 something I teach people to do in, in a course that I have. And, it, it, you know, it's yeah. just good communication techniques because, as you say, we all skim read. People don't read CVs. They skim read. Yeah. People read the profile. And if the profile, which I call a, a sort of personal value proposition, if you cannot develop... Uh, communicate your value very, very quickly um, in a way that is, you know, appropriate for your audience. Then you, you're lost. You're not. You're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. So, well, once you do get people into an interview situation, Ooh. this this is interesting. And, and let's say you've done a search, you know, uh, with Spencer Stewart or whoever else, and yeah. you're now presented, no doubt, with a very strong group of uh, a short list of candidates. You know, four or five people who are all excellent, probably all could do the job. How yeah. do you decide? Which one gets the job? What, what makes the difference for you? Yeah, that, that, that's really true. I mean, if the search firms have done their job, and by and large they do, then the candidates, by the time they get in front of uh, myself and Tim, will, as you say, they could probably all do the job on paper. Um, mm. Then it normally comes down to what, how good would the fit be in the company, and it's all the culture. And mm. that's, you know, that you can only really pick up by talking to the person on that. And... So, yeah, we would typically go for, you know, three people. Uh, the shortlist would typically be three people um, that we'd interview. And the interview is very much a chat because mm. they wouldn't be there if they couldn't do the job. You know, the headhunters sorted out the technical ability. So the discussions we have is more about how do you think? What would you do in this situation? Are you a team player? If you're a leader, do you, do you lead by delegation, when do you go and take control? How much headroom do you give people? 
Um, what's your culture? So it's very much the soft stuff that you can't pick up from a CV alone. The CV will tell you what people have done and um, you know what they can do. But it's that softer side of how well are they going to fit in the team? You know, are they going to be in the team rowing with us or are they going to be an anchor off the back of the boat? You know, and you'd be surprised. You have some great people on paper and they'll come in and you think, God, that would just depress me having to go to work and work with that person every day. Mm. You know, or wow, that person's going to make a difference. So I'd say, but if you get to an interview, um, you should be pretty happy because it's tough to get interviews nowadays. Um, yes, and if you get there, make sure that, you know, you give yourself time before you arrive to make sure you're relaxed and you, you, you can deploy your A game. You know, don't rush in being out of breath. I've had that before. So I rushed in, was late. First thing to do was sit down, have a drink of water. It took him about three, four minutes just to compose themselves. Um, and, and immediately you think, okay, well, how would that play out if you were going to roll out in front of a client or you're going to go and visit the prime minister or, you know, you've got a Greek royalty, all the sort of things that you, you, you tend to do at senior levels. So preparation. And mm. just, but also be yourself because it's no point pretending to be somebody different because you'll find out that you'll land and we will have made the wrong decision and you would have made the wrong decision because the culture fits. Isn't right. So I think interviews are all about, for me, it's all about the person. The history's there. And you're right, skim reading CVs. Um, I, I'll, I will skim read the CV, yeah, because it looked like they've done. Okay, fine, that's fine. Right, now the person. And that's to me what the interview's all about. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, the CV gets you through the door, and then and then it's your sort of, it's it's actually your emotional intelligence and and your ability to to um, to read the room and understand what's going on that, that that makes you know, and it's all the intangible stuff. And you can practice stuff. You can you can definitely definitely practice the delivery of your career narrative, and you should. Um, you can think about what sort of competency questions you're going to get asked, and you can come up with good relevant stories from your background which you've honed and, and all of that's very very important uh, but you need to be able to, to to read the room and you need to be able to to sort of uh interact on the spot because that's uh, yeah that's I, I, I think you know that practice and just thinking about what is it they're going to ask me you know quite often just as a you know when people come in to talk to us i normally let them settle down i'll just tell them a little bit about why we're we looking for the job now they probably know that but it just allows them just to settle down. And then my immediate question is, okay, tell me about you. Mm. And it's as open-ended as that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Tell me about you. And so then it gives people the freedom to talk about their career in the way that they want to talk about their career. Um, I'll often say, talk to me, you know, specifically about why, why did you change jobs at certain points? Which bits are you particularly proud of? Did you have any bits that you found particularly difficult? So just thinking about those type of questions, because they can be really open-ended. It's not likely to be, right, I see in 1992 you, you did this. What IT system did you use? You know, you're not going to get asked that question. Mm. It's more, like, more likely to be, why did you move from this company to that company? What was in your mind at that point? Because we're just trying to find out the person. How would I, as you just said, how would I open up? Because you're going to be asked to open up. Uh, absolutely. I use exactly the same question. Uh, I use it almost every time. And it's it's because it's so open-ended that you get a real insight into the person because they, it's a free forum for them to, you know, either really impress you with a incredibly well-honed 
uh, career narrative which really speaks about their journey and gives and is entertaining as as much as it is informative and gives mm. you a real sense of who they are or you give them so much rope that they hang themselves because they you know they waffle or they they you know they they just don't hit any real sense you know they they can't give you something that's concise and compelling which is what you need to be able to do in order to move the conversation onto something else so yeah i i do very much the same thing um and then you know see 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 how it progresses from there and pick out the interesting things that that uh, in their career that that you know maybe the challenge points and the bits that um you need to dig a little bit deeper on um but yeah, yeah that, also, that's good advice so be be honest um and i, I mean not lie but just be honest. Uh, so I, I, you know, I've come across people on their CVs, you know, and they'll say, you know, they were a, they're in their career, they're a project manager for Ford. And they'll talk about that they're a project manager for Ford of a 1.2 billion, you know, they're responsible for a 1.2 billion company. And you think, well, you weren't, were you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're a project manager. And that's, that's fine. So let's talk about what, what you were, you know, responsible for. That's a lot more interesting. I think those sort of interesting. Just, just be honest because people want to know you, you know, and um, yeah, passing yourself off as having greater responsibility than you did always that backfires. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I, I, I have a. Um... a a sort of resume masterclass I put out there, which, which talks about exactly this, you know, you need numbers, but the numbers really need to be your own. You shouldn't uh, try and pass off the wider sort of numbers in the, in the businesses being the ones that you were directly responsible for. So yes, you do need to, to be very careful of that. Um, Dave, look, I really, really appreciate you coming on. You've been really great and, and provided some incredible insight. Thank you very much for spending so much time with us. I'm sure you, uh, you're a very, very busy man. So much appreciated. Uh, Unfortunately, the uh, the recording cut it up, cut off there. I didn't get to hear Dave's response, uh, or I heard it in in reality, but uh, we haven't recorded it. So uh, it, we did sign off, and and uh, and uh, Dave uh, was very 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 kind in in giving so much of his time. I do think there's some really interesting bits in there. He explained a lot about how recruitment really works at the senior level, about how businesses grow, about the decisions that are made, about how. Um, recruitment really works and how people are hired. He mentioned off air actually after um, we finished and the recording had stopped the bit that, that you missed. Um, and we talked about the fact that he doesn't advertise his senior roles. He, he gives them to, to search companies or he has his internal people deal with them because lots of those senior roles are just too sensitive to have out in the market. Um, there may be an incumbent, there may be other reasons. So, you know, do do realise that the hidden job market is out there, um, and actually, Dave made a great point about the amount of approaches that he are made to him, and the fact that he is receptive to them. People are, and if you're interested in making direct approaches, if you're interested in thinking outside the box in your uh, job search do go to my site, careermovesecrets.com and have a look at the free resources there and indeed the paid course, which will really help you crack your uh, job search and get you there more quickly. Um, And if you're enjoying these podcasts, consider subscribing, consider leaving a review because um, it will really help. And of course, there will be more Career Move Secrets podcasts coming very soon. (laughs) 